Our sermon passage today is found in 1 Peter 5. You can find it on um, your bulletins in page 10, and it will also be projected above. I'll give you a little time to get there. First Peter 5, 1 through 14. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Maria. All right, kids, I mentioned your Trinity Kids Bulletin. You can grab that now, and there's a spot to jot down three things that I want you to listen for. And the first is a description of sheep. Secondly, an illustration, uh, or not an illustration, but a mention of church membership. And then thirdly, a roaring lion. So description of sheep, church membership, and a roaring lion. So with that, let me pray for us. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you that it is absolutely true and that you have given it to us because you love us. And so, Father, we pray that you would attend to your word now by your spirit, that you would enable us to see Jesus and that we would know him more today. And we pray this all in his name. Amen. When I was an RUF campus minister at Purdue, uh, we would do this religious organization uh, informational meeting that happened at the beginning of every school year. So you'd have freshmen come in. It was for those who might be interested in a campus ministry. And so there was this one guy who would always do the presentation, and he would give this stat. He would say, 80% of students will walk away from their faith in college. And I actually think that was an inaccurate stat. <laughs> and um, The way that he always used it always made me a little bit uncomfortable too because it sort of felt like we're trying to motivate with fear here and like this is not the best way to get these students to want to come to our campus ministries. 
So uh, it wasn't ideal, uh, but I did end up going and looking at a statistic recently here, and so this is what Barna says, that it's actually somewhere around 64% of students stop attending church after high school, after some kind of substantial involvement as a child or as a student. So even if that's not 100% accurate, it does seem to be the case that you could say after high school, there is some sort of a trend, or tendency at least, of Christians leaving the church. And you can guess a lot of reasons of why that might be. You're no longer forced to go. Uh, maybe you never really believed much of this in the first place. Um, it could even be, though, that, that, that you'd say, I, I actually now just get a whole lot more out of my campus ministry. And so going to a church, getting up on Sunday mornings, feels like something I just don't really need to do. And so uh, some of what that shows, I think, is that it's really easy to start viewing the local church as, we, we could probably say at best, uh, optional and unnecessary. And then maybe at worst, a, as almost a burden or something that, that could somehow distract me from my life with Jesus and with other people. But uh, here's the thing, though. I think that that view of the local church it, it applies to, to way more than just students. That's not a uniquely student sort of phenomenon. This applies to a whole lot of people. And I think even if people would say that they don't have necessarily a, a negative view of the church, they would say, I think, that they don't view it as this essential part of their life with God. And so this is our, our final week in this sermon series on 1 Peter. And so what Peter does in this passage is that he begins to, well, he doesn't begin to, he's actually been talking like this, but he speaks directly to, to what it looks like to be involved and engaged in the local church and why you need to do that. And so the, the question that we've been asking and answering as we've made our way through this letter is, how do we live faithfully in the world? And specifically, we were asking the question, how do you live faithfully in the world as exiles, as those living in a world that, don't, that doesn't share your same beliefs? And so an essential part to that answer of how we live faithfully is by being a part of a local church. So we'd say it this way, living faithfully in the world requires, and that's a strong word, requires being a part of a local church. And so I want to frame our time this afternoon by asking the question, why? Why do we need the church? Why be a part of a local flesh and blood community of people that you know and uh, of people who know you as well? Why do that rather than uh, listen to a podcast with a preacher who's much better than anything you'll ever hear right here? or a live stream who has music that is exactly the kind of thing that you'd prefer? Or even, um, why the church rather than my Bible study group or this other campus ministry that I feel really connected to that I, that, that I get more out of? So why, why do that? So two reasons from this passage. The first is this, uh, you need the church because the church is where Jesus shepherds you. It's where Jesus shepherds you. So what Peter does in verses four, one through four is he begins to give these specific instructions to elders in the church. And I realize that uh, if you're visiting here today and maybe if you've been around for a bit, that language of elder might be new to you. Um, it's, it's actually a really important word for us, um, not just because it's in the Bible, though that's the most important reason, uh, but because we are an elder-led church. So that the Greek word for elder is presbyteros, where we get the word Presbyterian. And so our form of church leadership is based on the, the, the way that the New Testament talks about elders. So we're an elder-led church. 
And so specifically, um, Andy and I are, as pastors, are what you, we, we would call teaching elders. And then uh, David, Mark, Jerry, and Wade, and Lee are our ruling elders. And so typically uh, here we just use the language of pastor and elder. Uh, but what Peter's doing here is he is speaking to elders specifically. And he recognizes himself as a fellow elder. He goes on and he says he's also a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that's going to be revealed. And if you see that word fellow that is at the beginning of elder, that word fellow actually extends to witness and partaker as well. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm a fellow elder, but I'm also one who bears witness to the suffering of Jesus. And I bear witness to that suffering in my own life. And also... I'm going to share in that glory that's coming when Jesus returns. Here's why this is important. That pattern of suffering and glory for elders is the pattern of Jesus' life. And we're going to see in a minute why it's so important that that pattern of suffering prior to glory is the pattern of uh, of the life of elders as well. So so that's who he's talking to. He's talking to elders. Uh, What's the call? What does he say to them? Verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And so what Peter does here is he taps into this a really big theme in the Bible. And it's the theme of God as shepherd and God's people as sheep. And so you, you see that all over the Bible. You think probably first of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. But even in Psalm 95, which is our call to worship this afternoon, we had some of that same language. And then most commentators think that the the specific Old Testament passage that Peter has in mind is Ezekiel 34, which is what we read in the Old Testament lesson. And so um, I didn't give the context when we read it, but the context of that passage is that Israel's religious leaders had failed miserably. They didn't, they didn't feed and shepherd the flock of God like they were supposed to. And so what the Lord is doing is he's indicting them in this passage. And he says this as the solution in verse 11 of Ezekiel 34. For thus says the Lord, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they've been scattered. So that is the promise that God made in the Old Testament. Now listen to 1 Peter 2, 25. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Here's the point. Jesus is your shepherd and the overseer of your soul. Peter calls him the chief shepherd. Jesus identifies himself in the Gospel of John as the good shepherd the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. So Jesus is the true shepherd. Here's the other thing that this means for us. It says something about who we are as sheep. And so most of the time, if you, if you talk about sheep and shepherds, the kind of thing that you think about are these sort of pretty landscape paintings. You think of like the, the warm pastel colors, gentle, fluffy little sheep. My niece had a little sheep that she carries with her called Lammy. You think of Lammy, right? Um, Or you think of like this, the picture behind us, right? We won't have this in our new building. Uh, Here's the thing, though. That's not what Peter's audience would have thought of when you talked about sheep and shepherds. So I want you to turn to the uh, front inside cover of your bulletin. Here's a more accurate description of what shepherding was really like in the ancient world. Trimper Longman says this. The conditions were very different from most modern practices. 
Sheep were not fenced in and left to fend for themselves. Instead, they were totally dependent on shepherds for protection, grazing, watering, shelter, and tending to injuries. In fact, sheep would not survive long without a shepherd. Sheep are not only dependent creatures, they are also singularly unintelligent, prone to wandering, and unable to find their way to a sheepfold even when it is within sight. So that's pretty humbling, right? Um, not quite the, the picture of the, the fluffy little animals, right? So the, the point is that sheep are helpless. They're needy. They wander and they need to be rescued. And so, so here's what that says about us. It says that we need to be shepherd, shepherded. And the beautiful thing about the Bible is that it says that that is exactly what Jesus does. In Jesus, you have a shepherd who guides you. You have a shepherd who protects you, who feeds you, who, who leads you. One who will come after you and rescue you when you begin to wander off from him. That's what he does for, for his flock. The question, though, is how does that work itself out practically? How does he, he, he practically shepherd us? And, and the answer of Peter, and really of the whole New Testament, is that it's through the, the under-shepherds or the elders of his church. And so, so what does that mean for us? Well, there, there are a lot of ways we could apply this, but, but here's one. It means that you have got to join a local church. If the church is the place where Jesus shepherds us, then, it's got, then we have got to be a part of that community. And uh, this is actually one of the ways that the New Testament makes the case uh, for church membership. And so you might hear that and think like, I don't really see in the Bible church membership, at least as we practice it. So if you were to, to flip to the back of your Bible in the concordance, you look up church membership, one, you're not going to find it. But even if you did, you, you start looking through and say, oh yeah, here's the uh, membership seminar that we do at the pastor's house. Then we get interviewed by the elders. We do all, no, we don't find any of that, right? But, uh, but, but here's, uh, here's how we do see it in the New Testament. What's assumed in the passages that talk about elders shepherding the flock is that there is a specific flock that they're responsible to shepherd. So another example is Paul in, in Acts 20. He says to shepherd the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So there, there's a defined group of people that are to be shepherded. And in verse 4, what Peter says is that there's this assumed, defined group of people for which elders are accountable to the chief shepherd. And then even in verse 5, Peter says that the younger ones are to be subject to the elders. So this works in the reverse as well. You've got to know who your elders are in order to do that. So here's the point. In order to receive the blessing of Jesus' shepherding, we need to join ourselves to a local church. And so the way that most churches do that is some, some form of, of a membership process. I need to say this too. It does not say or mean that you need to part, be a part of this church, right? But you do have to be a part of a church, a church, a church where you are vitally connected to that church. And so uh, as great as the, the pastor on the podcast is, as great as the, the, the church that, that you watch on that live stream really is, those are not your shepherds. They're not the ones who are accountable to Jesus for your souls. You've got to be a part of a local church. And so, um, so what does the shepherding look like practically? Because that's probably the question we're asking. 
Let me give uh, just a few highlights of what that could look like. Being shepherded through Jesus' church means that the church is the place where you're gonna be fed by his word and you're gonna be fed here at Jesus' table as well every single week. It means that, that, that the church is the place where you have elders who are committing to come alongside you to pray with and for you and to do that on the best days of your life and to be there with you on the absolute worst days of your life as well. Where you have elders who are committing to having hard conversations with you that are extremely uncomfortable but that are what love requires of us. The church is the place where you can be protected where you can be protected from the hardness and the deception of the sin that resides in your own heart and also what Peter says, from the deception of Satan himself. We'll talk more about that. The church becomes the place where what you do is you invite brothers and sisters to speak into your life, to help you see blind spots that you would never see otherwise. And now, of course, I should say this, not all of this is done directly by elders, nor should it be. Jesus, by his spirit, has poured out gifts upon his church, and the church needs every single one of those gifts. But the elders are the ones who are ultimately responsible to ensure that that's happening. And so this is part of the reason that, that one of our membership questions, the last one, asks us to submit to the government and the discipline of the church. We've got to be a part of a local church. Here's the thing, though. Um, I'm sure some of you are literally thinking this right now. All that sounds fine, maybe, but what about when the authority given by Jesus to elders is misused? When, uh, in the words of Peter in this passage, the elders have exercised oversight under compulsion, when they have done it for selfish and greedy gain, or, or where they have been domineering over those in their charge. I know uh, plenty of you have, have listened to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. That was a podcast that was all about the abuse of this authority that Jesus has given. And, and here's the thing. Uh, if you have experienced that, or even you have seen that, the understandable temptation is to think, why would I ever want to open myself up to that again? Or why would I ever want to open myself up to that for the first time? And so let me just try to say a couple things about that. One is this. That kind of abuse and misuse of authority is absolutely wrong. It's sin. It is evil. And I, I could go as far as to say that it's diabolical. It is the work of the evil one. And Jesus grieves over that in his church. He hates it. And I'm sorry if that has been your experience, but you need to know that that is not what Jesus intends for his church. Here's something though I want you to, to, to consider, especially if that's where you find yourself. I want you to fight the temptation to assume that every church must be that way. And so uh, let me give an analogy here. I want you to think about this. I know uh, some of you have, have grown up in uh, really tough families. Your family situation was, was in, in some ways horrible. Now, I want you to think about this. Is that gonna give you, now as you get older, is that gonna give you uh, some real caution? And maybe even in some cases, a little bit of, uh, of fear and apprehension in your own family that you now begin as an adult? Probably, right? But, you probably wouldn't assume that all families are going to be that way. 
that all families are bad or that the family as an institution is the problem. Instead, what you'd probably do is you would enter into your own family very aware of your own bad experience, not trying to pretend like it didn't happen, but at the same time with these realistic, not naive, but realistic hopes that your family is going to be different. And so what I'd encourage you to do is to do that very same thing with the church. And here's the the reason. The, the, The reason that that is worth doing is because the church is the place where Jesus promises to shepherd you. It's the place where he promises to give himself to you. So let me uh, close this point with three things here. I shouldn't say close in the middle of the sermon, right? Um, Remember three things. We need to remember three things. Here's the first. We need to remember that elders, we elders are sheep too. That there is only one true perfect shepherd and that's the chief shepherd. Every pastor, every elder will fall short and fail. And so part of what we need to do is have, uh, we need to pray for our elders. I need you to pray for me. Andy needs you to pray for him. And when we make mistakes, when we fail and ask forgiveness, we need your grace as well. Shepherds and elders are sheep too. Secondly, remember Jesus' intended way of shepherding. This is what he says in verses two and three. It's not under compulsion, but willingly. It's not greedy, it's not selfishly, but eagerly. It's not domineering, and here's the part that wraps this, the, the, this whole point, is that it, it, we're to uh, shepherd as examples of Jesus himself. The under shepherds are, are, are to reflect the chief shepherd in how they shepherd his flock. That's what Jesus intends. And here's the thing. When that happens, it is a wonderful gift and blessing of the Lord. And that's what Jesus intends for us. Third thing to remember, remember that elders are accountable to God for their care of the sheep. That's the the assumption that Peter makes in verse 4. It's that the elders will give an account. Let me read one other passage about this. This is uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. You should know that we as elders are ultimately accountable to Jesus himself. And and very practically, we are accountable to each other. And uh, even more practically in some sense, uh, we are accountable to our presbytery as well. That's another uh, Presbyterian word, obviously. That refers to the regional group of churches to which we are accountable. So we are under that sort of same authority and accountability as well. And so uh, all this, though, uh, goes to say is that this requires complete dependence upon the chief shepherd. And it requires immense humility on all of our parts. That's why Peter calls us to that in verse 5. What humility does is, is it forces us to recognize that, first and foremost, we need Jesus as our chief shepherd. That we will wander, we will stray on our own. But it also means that we need each other. That we need the church because this is where Jesus shepherds us. So that's the first reason that Peter gives that we need the church. Here's the second practical reason that we need the church that Peter highlights. It's this. You need the church because the church is where Jesus sustains your hope in the midst of suffering. It's where Jesus sustains your hope in the midst of suffering. So again, uh, for the final week here, remember Peter's audience. So uh, they uh, have been scattered across the Roman Empire Uh, All of what they were used to has been taken away from them. Their support structures. And so they're in these new churches. 
and, uh, and, and there's this need to support and care for one another. So all of the talk about meeting together, being committed to one another is huge for them. They need that support and that community while they're in exile. It's even more important though, because they are suffering. Peter has said they're being slandered, they're being maligned, they're being persecuted for their faith. And then in this particular passage, Peter says in verse seven that they're anxious. They're, anxi- they're, they're anxious in the face of all that's happening to them. And he says in verse eight, they're facing opposition from Satan himself. And so I want you to think for a minute um, uh, about what the temptation and the danger would be in the midst of that kind of suffering. We've actually talked about a lot of temptations uh, in the midst of suffering throughout this series, but, but one is that when you're in a tough spot is to start to believe that God doesn't really care. That when your life is a mess, when you're addicted to things that you wish you weren't and that you continue to fight, when you feel like you are getting slammed because you are a Christian in some part of your life, things aren't going the way they should, it is so easy to start to believe that God isn't in control or if he is in control, that he must not really care. And so what happens when you're in that place is that a sort of a, a cynicism can begin to set in. So what is cynicism? Cynicism is a, an attempt to try to protect yourself from getting hurt. And it goes something like this. I'm gonna assume that the worst is going to happen because when it does, I'll at least have a, a, expected it to come or I'll be pleasantly surprised. And so it's this attempt at protecting ourselves from it. And, and, and when you're in a place of real suffering, that's what begins to come naturally to us. That's the temptation for Peter's audience too. What does he say to them and to us in that place? Well, he gives them three commands and then a promise. And so each of these point to the way that Jesus through his church sustains our hope in the midst of that suffering. Here's the first command, verses six and seven. It's humble yourselves. So verse six, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. And I think for for some, that may be, that last phrase, may be one of the hardest things for you to believe. That God actually cares for you. I was listening to uh, a couple of different pastors. uh, This was a number of years ago. Two pastors independently of one another um, who, uh, who said, and defined their pastoral call in this way. They said, my calling is to convince you that God actually loves you in Christ. And one of the reasons that's so important is that it is so hard to believe that when you are suffering. And so it is right then, right there in that place that you need the church to remind you that he really does care that he really does love you, that he really has given his son for you. So that's the first command, to humble ourselves. Here's the second. It's to be sober-minded and to be watchful. So this is what he says in verse eight. Why does he say that? If you look back to verse eight, he says this. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Okay, so kids. Um, how many of you have been to the Fort Worth Zoo before? Let me show some hands here. I know we got some. Yeah, you can raise them if you're not a kid too. Uh, you shouldn't try and go right now. It's terrible when the weather's nice. It's, there's so many people there. Um, so uh, how many of you have heard the lions roar, not when you're standing right in front of their place, but when you're across the park from them? Seen that too? Heard it? Yes. Okay. 
So, uh, so you know that that gets even worse when they haven't been fed, right? That is a lion seeking to devour its prey, okay? That's the image that Peter gives of how Satan is seeking to devour us, the people of God. And that is something that we have got to remind one another of because the, the thing is, is that if you saw that lion and you saw that, that, that it was hungry and that it was seeking to devour something, you would immediately know that you were in danger, right? Well, we don't feel that same way in the face of Satan's prowling. Why not? Because it is so much more subtle. And so what happens is it looks something more like whispering lies to you, deceiving you in particular ways. Maybe thinking that, trying to get you to think that, that maybe what you've done is something that puts you on beyond the pale of God's grace to you. That maybe that sin you committed is too much for God to forgive. Maybe God doesn't actually have your best interest at heart. Maybe he doesn't actually love you. It's that kind of deception that's so subtle that is the kind of devouring that he is trying to wreak upon you. This is why we need the church. We've got to remind one another, one, that that's actually happening. That there is an enemy who's trying to, to deceive us in that way. And two, we've got to remind one another what is actually true. And to point one another to Jesus. And you've got to be in real relationships with one another in order for that to happen. So think again uh, about a lion attacking. So when you see uh, a lion on Discovery Channel or National Geographic, one of those cha channels, uh, who does the lion go after? It goes after the one who is separated from the herd, right? And so that, that's, that's, the, 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 that's the, the image for us, that when we are separated from the body of Christ, we aren't safe. We're not safe on our own. We need one another in the church because this is where Jesus will keep and protect you. Third command, resist him. He says this, stand firm in your faith. Know that your brothers and your sisters are suffering too. Know that, that you are not alone in your suffering. And then finally, the promise. God will restore you in the end. So look at verse 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And do you know why that's true? Do you, know why, do you know why you can be sure that that actually is your future? You can be sure because you have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You can be sure because he himself bore your sins in his body on the tree and that it is by his wounds that you have been healed. You can be sure because Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. That is what Jesus has done for you. So I wanna uh, conclude our series actually in the way that Peter does here. So I want this to serve as sort of a, a benediction to us, a blessing upon us, and a call to us as a church. Two things that he says. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And then he says this at the end. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Shalom to all of you who are in Christ. Amen. Father, we thank you uh, that you are a God who, 
has shepherded us, cared for us, and through the shepherding of our chief shepherd, your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that we would give ourselves uh, to his shepherding care, that we would continue to look to him, for him to protect us, to feed us, to nourish us, to care for us, to, to come after us when we wander, and that we would look to him in faith, knowing that he loves us and cares for us. And we pray this all in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.